He put his feet on the desk and blew out a cloud of smoke. He'd have to get rid of the carpet. He wasn't going to spend the rest of his life working in a room haunted by the smell of departed spirits. Carrot's mouth was still open. Oh, good grief, said Vimes. Look, it's quite simple, man. I was expected to go, at last, alcohol, and chug-a-lug the lot without thinking. Then some respectable pillars of the community, he removed the cigar from his mouth and spat. We're going to find me, in your presence too, which is a nice touch, with the evidence of my crime neatly hidden, but not so well hidden that they couldn't find it. He shook his head sadly. The trouble is, you know, that once the taste's got you, it never lets go. But you've been very good, sir, said Carrot. I've not seen you touch a drop for... Oh, that, said Vimes. I was talking about policing, not alcohol. There's lots of people will help you with the alcohol business, but there's no one out there arranging little meetings where you can stand up and say, My name is Sam, and I'm a really suspicious bastard. He pulled a paper bag out of his pocket. We'll get Littlebottom to have a look at this, he said. I damn sure wasn't going to try tasting it. So I nipped down to the canteen and filled a bag with sugar out of the bowl. It was but the work of a moment to fish Nobby's butts out of it, I might add. He opened the door, poked his head out into the corridor and yelled, Little Bottom! To Carrot, he added, You know, I feel quite perked up. The old brain has begun to work at last. You know the golem that did the killing? Yes, sir. Ah, but do you know what was special about it? Can't think, sir, said Carrot, except that it was a new one. The golems made it themselves, I think. But of course they needed a priest for the words and they had to borrow Mr Hopkinson's oven. I expect the old men thought it would be interesting. They were historians after all. It was Vimes's turn to stand there with his mouth open. Finally he got control of himself. Yes, yes, of course, he said, his voice barely shaking. Yes, I mean, well, that's obvious, plain as the nose on your face, but uh, have you worked out what else is special about it? he added, trying to keep any trace of hope out of his voice. "'You mean the fact that it's gone mad, sir?' "'Well, I didn't think it was a winner of the Ankh Morpork Mr Sanity Award,' said Vimes. "'I mean, they drove it mad, sir, the other golems. They didn't mean to, but it was built in, sir. They wanted it to do so many things. It was like their child, I think, all their hopes and dreams. And when they found out it had been killing people, well, that's terrible to a golem. They mustn't kill.' and it was their own clay doing it. It's not a great idea for people either, but they'd put all their future in it. You wanted me, Commander, said Cheery. Oh, yes, is this arsenic, said Vimes, handing her the packet. Cheery sniffed at it. It could be arsonous acid, sir. I'll have to test it, of course. I thought acid sloshed about in jars, said Vimes. Er, uh, what's that on your hands? Nail varnish, sir. Nail varnish? Yes, sir. Er, uh, fine, fine. Funny, I thought it would be green. Wouldn't look good on the fingers, sir. I meant the arsenic, little bottom. Oh, you can get all sorts of colours of arsenic, sir. The sulphides, that's the ore, sir, can be red or brown or yellow or grey, sir. And then you cook them up with nitre and you get arsonous acid, sir, and a load of nasty smoke. Really bad. Dangerous stuff, said Vimes. Not good at all, sir, but useful, sir, said Cheery. Tanners, dyers, painters. It's not just poisonous that have got a use for arsenic. I'm surprised people aren't dropping dead of it all the time, said Vimes. Oh, most of them use golems, sir. The words stayed in the air even after Cheery stopped speaking. Vimes caught Carrot's eye and started to whistle hoarsely under his breath. 
This is it, he thought. This is where we filled ourselves up with so many questions that they're starting to overflow and become answers. He felt more alive than he had for days. The recent excitement still tingled in his veins, kicking his brain into life. It was the sparkle you got with exhaustion, he knew. You were so bone-weary that a shot of adrenaline hit you like a falling troll. They must have it all now. All the bits, the edges, the corners, the whole picture, all there just waiting to be pieced together. These golems, said Carrot, they'd be covered in arsenic, would they? Could be, sir. I saw one at the Alchemist's Guild building in Quirm, and <laughs> it had even got arsenic plated on its hands, sir, on account of stirring crucibles with its fingers. They don't feel heat, said Vimes. Or pain, said Carrot. That's right, said Cheery. She looked uncertainly from one to the other. You can't poison them, said Vimes. And they'll obey orders, said Carrot, without speaking. Golems do all the really mucky jobs, said Vimes. You could have mentioned this before, Cheery, said Carrot. Well, you know, sir, golems are just there, sir. No one notices golems. Grease under his fingernails, said Vimes to the room in general. The old man scratched at his murderer. Grease under his fingernails with arsenic in it. He looked down at the notebook still on his desk. It's there, he thought, something we haven't seen, but we've looked everywhere, so we've seen the answer and haven't seen that it is the answer, and if we don't see it now, at this moment, we'll never see it at all. No offence, sir, but that's probably not a help, said Cheery's voice somewhere in the distance. So many of the trades that use arsenic involve some kind of grease. Something we don't see, thought Vimes, something invisible. Now, it wouldn't have to be invisible, something we don't see because it's always there. Something that strikes in the night. And there it was. He blinked. The glittering stars of exhaustion were causing his mind to think oddly. Well, thinking rationally hadn't worked. No one move, he said. He held up a hand for silence. There it is, he said softly. There, on my desk. You see it? What, sir? said Carrot. You mean you haven't worked it out? said Vimes. What, sir? The thing that's poisoning his lordship. There it is, on the desk, see? Your notebook? No. He drinks Bear Hugger's whisky, said Cheery. I doubt it, said Vimes. The blotter, said Carrot. Poisoned pens, a packet of pent weeds. Where are they? said Vimes, patting his pockets. Just sticking out from under the letters in the in-tray, said Carrot. He added reproachfully. You know, sir, the ones you don't answer. Vimes picked up the packet and extracted another cigar. Thanks, he said. Ha! I didn't ask Mildred Easy what else she took. But of course, they're a servant's little bonus too. And old Mrs Easy was a seamstress, a proper seamstress. And this is autumn. Killed by the knights drawing in, see? Carrot crouched down and looked at the surface of the desk. "'Can't see it myself, sir,' he said. "'Of course you can't,' said Vimes, "'because there's nothing to see. "'You can't see it. "'That's how you can tell it's there. "'If it wasn't there, you'd soon see it.' "'He gave a huge, manic grin. "'Only you wouldn't. "'See?' "'You all right, sir?' said Carrot. "'I know you've been overdoing it a bit these last few days.' "'I've been underdoing it,' said Vimes. "'I've been running around looking for damn clues "'instead of just thinking for five minutes. "'What is it I'm always telling you?' "'Er, uh, 
Uh, never trust anybody, sir. No, not that. Uh, uh, everyone's guilty of something, sir. Not that either. Uh, uh, just because someone's a member of an ethnic minority doesn't mean they're not a nasty, small-minded little jerk, sir. No. When did I say that? Last week, sir, after we'd had that visit from the Campaign for Equal Heights, sir. Well, not that. I mean, I'm pretty sure I always say something else that's very relevant here. Something pithy about police work. Mm, can't remember anything right now, sir. Well, I'll damn well make something up and start saying it a lot from now on. Jolly good, sir, Carrot beamed. It's good to see you your old self again, sir. Looking forward to kicking ass to prodding buttocks, sir. Uh, what have we found, sir? You'll see. We're going to the palace. Fetch Angua, we might need her, and bring the search warrant. You mean the sledgehammer, sir? Yes, and Sergeant Colon, too. He hasn't signed in again yet, sir, said Cheery. He should have gone off duty an hour ago. Probably hanging around somewhere, staying out of trouble, said Vimes. We mad Arthur peered over the edge of the wall. Somewhere below Colon, two red eyes stared up at him. Heavy, is it? Kick it with your other foot. There was a sucking sound. Colon winced. Then there was a plop, a moment of silence, and a loud crash of pottery down in the street. The boot it was holding came off, moaned Colon. How did that happen? It got lubricated. Wee Mad Arthur tugged at a finger. Up ye come, then. Can't. Why not? I ain't holding on to you no more. Arms tired. Another ten seconds I'm going to be a chalk outline. Nah, no one's got that much chalk. Wee Mad Arthur knelt down so that his head was level with Colon's eyes. If you're going to die, do you mind signing a chitty to say you promised me a dollar? Down below there was a chink of pottery shards. What was that? said Colon. I thought the damn thing smashed up. We mad Arthur looked down. Do you believe in that reincarnation stuff, Mr Colon? he said. You wouldn't get me touching that foreign muck, said Colon. Well, it's putting itself together like one of them jigsaw puzzles. Well done, we mad Arthur, said Colon. But I know you're just saying that so as I'll make the effort to haul myself upright. Statues don't go putting themselves back together when they're smashed up. Please yourself. It's done nearly a whole leg already. Colon managed to peer down through the small and smelly space between the wall and his armpit. All he could see were shreds of fog and a faint glow. You sure? he said. You run around rat holes, you learns to see good in the dark, said Wee Mad Arthur. Otherwise you're dead. Something hissed somewhere below Colon's feet. With his one booted foot and his toes, he scrabbled at the brickwork. He's having a wee bit of trouble said Wee Mad Arthur, conversationally. Looks like it's put its knees on the wrong way round. Dorful sat hunched in the abandoned cellar where the golems had met. Occasionally the golem raised its head and hissed. Red light spilled from its eyes. If something had streamed back down through the glow, soared through the eye sockets into the red sky beyond, there would be... Dorful huddled under the glow of the universe. Its murmur was a long way off, muted, nothing to do with Dorful. The words stood around the horizon, reaching all the way to the sky. And a voice said quietly, You own yourself. Dorful saw the scene again and again, saw the concerned face, hand reaching up, filling its vision, felt the sudden icy knowledge. Own yourself. It echoed off the words and then rebounded, and then rolled back and forth, increasing in volume until the little world between the words was gripped in the sound. Golem must have a master.
the letters towered against the world, but the echoes poured around them, blasting like a sandstorm. Cracks started and then ran zigzagging across the stone, and then the words exploded. Great slabs of them, mountain-sized, crashed in showers of red sand. The universe poured in. Dorful felt the universe pick it up and bowl it over and then lift it off its feet and up. And now the golem was among the universe. It could feel it all around, the purr of it, the busyness, the spinning complexity of it, the roar. There were no words between you and it. You belonged to it. It belonged to you. You couldn't turn your back on it because there it was in front of you. Dorful was responsible for every tick and swerve of it. You couldn't say, I had orders. You couldn't say, it's not fair. No one was listening. There were no words. You owned yourself. Dorful orbited a pair of glowing suns and hurtled off again. Not, thou shalt not... Say, I will not. Dorful tumbled through the red sky, then saw a dark hole ahead. The golem felt it dragging at him and streamed down through the glow, and the hole grew larger and sped across the edges of Dorful's vision. The golem opened his eyes. No, master. Dorful unfolded in one movement and stood upright. He reached out one arm and extended a finger. The golem pushed the finger easily into the wall where the argument had taken place and then dragged it carefully through the splintering brickwork. It took him a couple of minutes, but it was something Dorful felt needed to be said. Dorful completed the last letter and poked a row of three dots after it. Then the golem walked away, leaving behind no master dot dot dot. A blue overcast from the cigars hid the ceiling of the smoking room. "'Ah, yes, Captain Carrot,' said a chair. "'Yes, indeed. But is he the right man?' "'He's got a birthmark shaped like a crown. I've seen it,' said Nobby helpfully. "'But his background?' "'He was raised by dwarfs,' said Nobby. He waved his brandy glass at a waiter. "'Same again, mister.' "'I shouldn't think dwarfs could raise anyone very high,' said another chair. There was a hint of laughter. "'Rumours and folklore,' someone murmured. This is a large and busy and above all complex city. I'm afraid that having a sword and a birthmark are not much in the way of qualifications. We would need a king from a lineage that is used to command. Like yours, my lord. There was a sucking, draining noise as Nobby attacked the fresh glass of brandy. Ah, oh, I'm used to command, all right, he said, lowering the glass. People are always ordering me around. We would need a king who had the support of the great families and major guilds of the city. People like Carrot, said Nobby. Oh, the people. Anyway, whoever'd got the job would have his work cut out, said Nobby. Old Vetinari's always pushing paper. What kind of fun is that? It's no life, sitting up all hours, worrying, never a moment to yourself. He held out the empty glass. Same again, me old mate. Fill it right up this time, eh? No sense in having a great big glass and only sloshing a bit in the bottom, is there? Many people prefer to savour the bouquet, said a quietly horrified chair. They enjoy sniffing it. Nobby looked at his glass with the red-veined eyes of one who'd heard rumours about what the upper crust got up to. Nah, he said. I'll go on sticking it in me mouth if it's all the same to you. 
"'If we may get to the point,' said another chair, "'a king would not have to spend every moment running the city. "'He would, of course, have people to do that. "'Advisers, counsellors, people of experience.' "'So what did he have to do?' said Nobby. "'He'd have to reign,' said a chair. "'Wave. Preside at banquets. "'Sign things.' "'Guzzle good brandy disgustingly. "'Rain!' "'Sounds like a good job to me,' said Nobby. "'All right for some, eh? "'Of course a king would have to be someone who could recognise a hint "'if it was dropped on his head from a great height,' said a speaker sharply, "'but the other chairs shushed him into silence. "'Nobby managed to find his mouth after several goes "'and took another long pull at his cigar. "'Seems to me,' he said, "'seems to me!' What you want to do is find some knob with time on his hands and say, Yo, it's your lucky day. Let's see you wave that hand. Ah, that's a good idea. Does any name cross your mind, my lord? Have a drop more brandy. Why, thanks, you're a toff. Oh, of course, <laughs> so am I, eh? <laughs> that's right, Flunky, all the way to the top. Nah, can't think of anyone that fits the bill. In fact, my lord, we were indeed thinking of uh, offering the crown to you. Nobby's eyes bulged, and then his cheek bulged. It's not a good idea to spray finest brandy across the room, especially when your lighted cigar is in the way. The flame hit the far wall, where it left a perfect chrysanthemum of scorched woodwork, while, in accordance with a fundamental rule of physics, Nobby's chair screamed back on its casters and thudded into the door. King? Nobby coughed, and then they had to slap him on the back until he got his breath again. King? he wheezed. And have Mr Vimes cut me head off? All the brandy you can drink, my lord, said a wheedling voice. No good if you ain't got a throat for it to go down. "'What are you talking about? "'Mr Vimes would go spare. "'He'd go spare.' "'Good heavens, man!' "'My lord,' someone corrected. "'My lord, I mean, when you're king, "'you can tell that wretched Sir Samuel what to do. "'You'll be, as you would call it, the boss. "'You could tell old Stoneface what to do,' said Nobby. "'That's right. "'I'd be a king and tell old Stoneface what to do,' said Nobby. "'Yes,' Nobby stared into the smoky gloom. "'He'd go spare!' "'Listen, you silly little man, my lord, "'you silly little lord, "'you'd be able to have him executed if you wished.' "'I couldn't do that.' "'Why not?' "'He'd go spare!' "'The man calls himself an officer of the law, "'and whose law does he listen to, eh? "'Where does his law come from?' "'I don't know,' groaned Nobby. "'He says it comes up through his boots.' "'He looked around.' The shadows in the smoke seemed to be closing in. I can't be king. Old Vimes would go spare. Will you stop saying that? Nobby pulled at his collar. It's a bit hot and smoky in here, he mumbled. Which way's the window? Over there. The chair rocked. Nobby hit the glass, helmet first, landed on top of a waiting carriage, bounced off and ran into the night, trying to escape destiny in general and axes in particular. Cherie Littlebottom strode into the palace kitchens and fired her crossbow into the ceiling. Don't nobody move, she yelled. The patrician's domestic staff looked up from their dinner. 
"'When you say, don't nobody move,' said Drumnot carefully, fastidiously taking a piece of plaster off his plate, "'do you, in fact, mean?' "'All right, Corporal, I'll take over now,' said Vimes, patting Cherie on the shoulder. "'Is Mildred easy here?' All heads turned. Mildred's spoon dropped into her soup. "'It's all right,' said Vimes. "'I just need to ask you a few more questions.' "'I'm so sorry, sir.' "'You haven't done anything wrong,' said Vimes, walking around the table. "'But you didn't just take food home for your family, did you?' "'Sir?' "'What else did you take?' Mildred looked at the suddenly blank expressions on the faces of the other servants. "'There was the old sheets, but Mrs Diblock did say I could have—' "'No, not that,' said Vimes. Mildred licked her dry lips. Uh, "'There was—there was some boot polish.' "'Look,' said Vimes, as kindly as possible. "'Everyone takes small things from the place where they work, "'small stuff that no one notices. "'No one thinks of it as stealing. "'It's like... it's like rights. "'Odds and ends. "'Ends, Miss Easy. "'I'm thinking about the word ends.' <gasps> you, "'You mean candle ends, sir?' "'Vimes took a deep breath.' It was such a relief to be right, even though you knew you'd only got there by trying every possible way to be wrong. Ah, he said. But that's not stealing, sir. I've never stolen nothing, sir. But you take home the candle stubs. Still half an hour of light in them, I expect, if you burn them in a saucer, said Vimes gently. But that's not stealing, sir. That's perks, sir. Sam Vimes smacked his forehead. "'Perks, of course. That was the word I was looking for. Perks. Everyone's got to have perks, aren't I right?' "'Well, that's fine, then,' he said. "'I expect you get the ones from the bedrooms, yes?' Even through her nervousness, Mildred Easy was able to grin the grin of someone with an entitlement that lesser beings hadn't got. "'Yes, sir. I'm allowed, sir. They're much better than the old coarse ones we use in the main hall, sir.' "'And you put in fresh candles when necessary, do you?' "'Yes, sir.' Probably slightly more often than necessary, Vimes thought. No point in letting them burn down too much. Perhaps you can show me where they're kept, miss. The maid looked along the table to the housekeeper, who glanced at Commander Vimes and then nodded. She was bright enough to know when something that sounded like a question really wasn't one. We keep them in the candle pantry next door, sir, said Mildred. Lead the way, please. It wasn't a big room, but its shelves were stacked floor to ceiling with candles. There were the yard-high ones used in the public halls, and the small everyday ones used everywhere else, sorted according to quality. These are what we use as in his lordship's rooms, sir. She handed him twelve inches of white candle. Oh, yes. Very good quality. Number fives. Nice white tallow, said Vimes, tossing it up and down. We burn these at home. The stuff we use at the yard is damn near pork-dripping. We get ours from carries in the shambles now. Very reasonable prices. We used to deal with Spadger and Williams, but Mr Carries really cornered the market these days, hasn't he? Yes, sir, and he delivers them special, sir. And you put these candles in his lordship's room every day? Yes, sir. Anywhere else? Oh, no, sir, his lordship's particular about that. We just use number threes. And you take your, uh, perks home? "'Yes, sir. Gran said they gave a lovely light, sir.' "'I expect she sat up with your little brother, did she? "'Because I expect he got took sick first, "'so she sat up with him all night long, night after night, "'and uh, if I know old Mrs Easy, she did her sewing.' "'Yes, sir.' There was a pause. 
Use my handkerchief, said Vimes after a while. Am I going to lose my position, sir? No, that's definite. No one involved deserves to lose their jobs, said Vimes. He looked at the candle. Except possibly me, he added. He stopped at the doorway and turned. And if you ever want candle ends, we've always got lots at the watch house. Nobby will have to start buying cooking fat like everybody else. What's it doing now? said Sergeant Colan. We mad Arthur peered over the edge of the roof again. It's having problems with its elbows, he said conversationally. It keeps looking at one of them and trying it all the ways up and it's not working. I had that trouble when I put up them kitchen units for Mrs. Colan, said the sergeant. The instructions on how to open the box were inside the box. Uh-oh, it's worked it out, said the rat catcher. Looks like it had it mixed up with its knees after all. Colon heard a clank below him. And now it's gone round the corner. There was a crash of splintering wood. And now it's got into the building. I expect it'll come up the stairs. But it looks like you'll be OK. Why? Cos all you got to do is let go of the roof, see? I'll drop to my death. Right. Nice clean way to go. None of that arms and legs being ripped off stuff first. I wanted to buy a farm, moaned Colon. Could be, said Arthur. He looked over the roof again. Or, he said, as if this were hardly a better option, you could try to grab the drain pipe. Colon looked sideways. There was a pipe a few feet away. If he swung his body and really made an effort, he might just miss it by inches and plunge to his death. Does it look safe, he said. Compared with what, mister? Colon tried to swing his legs like a pendulum. Every muscle in his arm screamed at him. He knew he was overweight. He'd always meant to take exercise one day. He just hadn't been aware that it was going to be today. I reckon I can hear it walking up the stairs, said wee mad Arthur. Colon tried to swing faster. What are you going to do, he said. Oh, don't you worry about me, said wee mad Arthur. I'll be fine. I'll jump. Jump? Sure, I'll be safe because I've been normal-sized at sea. You think that you're normal-sized? Wee mad Arthur looked at Colon's hands. Are these your fingers right here by my boots, he said. Right, right, you're normal-sized. It's not your fault you've moved into a city full of giants, said Colon. Right, the smaller you are, the lighter you'll fall. Well-known fact. A spider'll not even notice a drop like this. A mouse'd walk away, a horse'd break every bone in its body, and a elephant'd splat... Oh, gods, muttered Colon. He could feel the drainpipe with his boot now but getting a grip would mean that there would have to be one long, bottomless moment when he was not exactly holding onto the roof and not exactly holding onto the drainpipe and in very serious peril of holding onto the ground. There was another crash from somewhere on the roof. Right, said wee mad Arthur, see is at the bottom. Oh, gods! The gnome stepped off the roof. All OK so far, he shouted as he went past Colon. Oh, gods! Sergeant Colon looked up into the two red glows. Doing fine up to now, said a dopplering voice from below. Oh, gods! Colon heaved his legs around, stood on fresh air for a moment, grabbed the top of the pipe, ducked his head as a pottery fist swung at him, heard the nasty little noise as the pipe's rusty bolts said goodbye to the wall, and still clinging to a tilting length of cast-iron pipe, as if it were going to help, disappeared backwards into the fog. Mr Sock looked up at the sound of the door opening, and then cowered back against the sausage machine. You, he whispered, he, you can't come back, I sold you. Dorful regarded him steadily for a few seconds and then walked past him and took the largest cleaver from the blood-stained rack on the wall. Sock began to shake. 
I, I was always good to you, he said, always let you have your holy days off. Dorfel stared at him again. It's only red light, Sock gibbered to himself, but it seemed more focused. He felt it entering his head through his own eyes and examining his soul. The golem pushed him aside and stepped out of the slaughterhouse and towards the cattle pens. Sock unfroze. They never fought back, did they? They couldn't. It was how the damn things were made. He stared around at the other workers, humans and trolls alike. Don't just stand there! Get it! One or two hesitated. It was a big cleaver in the golem's hand, and when Dorfel stopped to look around at them, there was something different about the golem's stance, too. It didn't look like something that wouldn't fight back. But Sock didn't employ people for the muscles in their heads. Besides, no one had really liked a golem around the place. A troll aimed a poleaxe at him. Dorfel caught it, one-handed, without turning his head, and snapped the hickory handle with his fingers. A man with a hammer had it plucked from his hand and thrown so hard at the wall that it left a hole. After that, they followed at a cautious distance. Dorfel took no further notice of them. The steam over the cattle pens mingled with the fog. Hundreds of dark eyes watched Dorfel curiously as he walked between the fences. They were always quiet when the golem was around. He stopped by one of the largest pens. There were voices from behind. Don't tell me it's going to slaughter the lot of them. We'll never get that lot jointed this shift. I heard where there was one at a carpenter's that went on and made 5,000 tables in one night. Lost count or something. It was just staring at them. I mean, 5,000 tables. One of them had 27 legs. It got stuck on legs. Dorfel brought the cleaver down hard and sliced the lock off the gate. The cattle watched the golem with that guarded expression which cattle have that means they're waiting for the next thought to turn up. He walked onto the sheep pens and opened them too. The pigs were next, and then the poultry. All of them, said Mr Sock. The golem walked calmly back down the line of pens, ignoring the watchers, and re-entered the slaughterhouse. He came out very shortly afterwards, leading the ancient and hairy billy goat on a piece of string. He went past the waiting animals until he reached the wide gates that led onto the main road, which he opened. Then he let the goat loose. The animal sniffed the air and rolled its slotted eyes, then, apparently deciding that the distant odour of the cabbage fields beyond the city wall was much preferable to the smells immediately around it, it trotted away up the road. The animals followed it in a rush, but with hardly any other noise than the rustle of movement and the sounds of their hooves. They streamed around the stationary figure of Dorful, who stood and watched them go. A chicken, bewildered by the stampede, landed on the golem's head and started to cluck. Anger finally overcame Sock's terror. "'What the hell are you doing?' he shouted to a field of a few stray sheep as they bolted out of the pens. "'That's money walking out of the gate, you!' Dorfel's hand was suddenly around his throat. The golem picked him up and held the struggling man at arm's length, turning his head this way and that as if considering his next course of action. Finally, he tossed away the cleaver, reached up under the chicken that had taken up residence, and produced a small brown egg. With apparent ceremony... The golem smashed it carefully on Sock's scalp and dropped him. The golem's former co-workers jumped back out of the way as Dorfel walked back through the slaughterhouse. There was a tally board on the entrance. Dorfel looked at it for a while, then picked up the chalk and wrote, No master. The chalk crumbled in his fingers. Dorfel walked out into the fog. Cherie looked up from her workbench. "'The wick's full of arsonous acid,' she said. "'Well done, sir. This candle even weighs slightly more than other candles.' 
What an evil way to kill anyone, said Angua. Certainly very clever, said Vimes. Vetinari sits up half the night writing, and in the morning the candle's burned down. Poisoned by the light. The light's something you don't see. Who looks at the light? Not some plodding old copper. Oh, you're not that old, sir, said Carrot, cheerfully. What about plodding? Or oh, that plodding either, Carrot added quickly. I've always pointed out to people that you walk in a very purposeful and meaningful manner. Vimes gave him a sharp look and saw nothing more than a keen and innocently helpful expression. "'We don't look at the light, because the light is what we look with,' said Vimes. "'Okay, and now I think we should go and have a look at the candle factory, shouldn't we? "'You come, Little Bottom, and bring your... have you got taller, Little Bottom?' "'High heel boots, sir,' said Cherry. "'I thought dwarfs always wore iron boots. "'Yes, sir, but I've got high heels on mine, sir. "'I welded them on.' "'Oh, fine, right.' Vimes pulled himself together. Well, if you could still totter, bring your alchemy stuff with you. Detritus should have come off duty from the palace. When it comes to locked doors, you can't beat Detritus. He's a walking crowbar. We'll pick him up on the way. He loaded his crossbow and lit a match. Right, he said. We've done it the modern way. Now let's try policing like Grandfather used to do it. It's time to... Prod buttock, sir, said Carrot hurriedly. Close, said Vimes, taking a deep drag and blowing out a smoke ring but no cigar. Sergeant Colon's view of the world was certainly changing. Just when something was about to fix itself firmly in his mind as the worst moment of his entire life, it was hurriedly replaced by something even nastier. Firstly, the drain pipe he was riding hit the wall of the building opposite. In a well-organised world, he might have landed on a fire escape, but fire escapes were unknown in Ark Morpork and the flames generally had to leave via the roof. With the pipe thus leaning against the wall, he found himself sliding down the diagonal. Even this might have been a happy outcome were it not for the fact that Colon was a heavy man, and as his weight slid nearer to the middle of the unsupported pipe, the pipe sagged, and cast iron has only a very limited amount of sag before it snaps, which it now did. Colon dropped and landed on something soft, at least softer than the street, and the something went... <coughs> He bounced off it and landed on something lower and softer, which went bah, and rolled from this onto something even lower and apparently made of feathers, which went insane and pecked him. The street was full of animals, milling around uncertainly. When animals are in a state of uncertainty, they get nervous, and the street was already, as it were, paved with anxiety. The only benefit to Sergeant Colon was that this made it slightly softer than would otherwise have been the case. Hooves trod on his hands. Very large, dribbly noses sneezed at him. Sergeant Colon had not hitherto had a great deal of experience of animals, except in portion sizes. When he'd been little, he'd had a pink-stuffed pig called Mr Dreadful, and he'd got up to Chapter 6 in Animal Husbandry. It had woodcuts in it. There was no mention of hot, smelly breath and great clomping feet like soup plates on a stick. Cows in Sergeant Colon's book should go, Moo. Every child knew that. They shouldn't go, Moo, like some kind of undersea monster, and spray you with spit. He tried to get up, skidded on some cow's moment of crisis, and sat down on a sheep. It went, blah! What kind of noise was that for a sheep to make? He got up again and tried to make his way back to the curb. Shoo! Get out of the damn way, you sheep! Gone! A goose hissed at him and stuck out altogether too much neck. Colon backed off and stopped when something nudged him in the back. It was a pig. It was no Mr. Dreadful. This wasn't the little piggy that went to market, or the little piggy that stayed at home. It would be quite hard to imagine what kind of foot would have a piggy like this. 
but it would probably be the kind that also had hair and scales and toenails like cashew nuts. This piggy was the size of a pony. This piggy had tusks, and it wasn't pink. It was a blue-black colour and covered with sharp hair, but it did have, let's be fair, thought Colin, little red piggy eyes. This little piggy looked like the little piggy that killed the boarhounds, disemboweled the horse, and ate the huntsman. Colin turned around and came face to face with a bull-like beef cube on legs. It turned its huge head from side to side so that each rolling eye could get a sight of the sergeant. But it was clear that neither of them liked him very much. It lowered its head. There wasn't room for it to charge, but it could certainly push. As the animals crowded around him, Colon took the only way of escape possible. There were men slumped all over the alley. Hello, 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 what's all this then? said Carrot. A man who was holding his arm and groaning looked up at him. We were viciously attacked. We don't have time for this, said Vimes. We may have, said Angua. She tapped him on the shoulder and pointed to the wall opposite, on which was written in a familiar script, No, master. Carrot hunched down and spoke to the casualty. You were attacked by a golem, were you? he said. Right, vicious bugger. Just walked out of the fog and went for us. You know what they're like. Carrot gave the man a cheerful smile. Then his gaze travelled along the man's body to the big hammer lying in the gutter and moved from that to the other tools strewn around the scene of the fight. Several had their handles broken. There was a long crowbar bent nearly into a circle. "'It's lucky you were all so well armed,' he said. "'It turned on us,' said the man. He tried to snap his fingers. "'Just like that. Oh! Ah!' "'You seem to have hurt your fingers.' "'You're right.' It's just that I don't understand how it could have turned on you and just walked out of the fog, said Carrot. Everyone knows they're not allowed to fight back. Fight back, Carrot repeated. It's not right, them walking around the streets like that, the man muttered, looking away. There was the sound of running feet behind them and a couple of men in blood-stained aprons caught up with them. It went that way, one yelled. You'll be able to catch up with it if you hurry. Come on, don't hang around. What do we pay our taxes for? said the other. It went all round the cattle yards and let everything out. Everything! You can't move on Pigsty Hill. A golem let all the cattle out, said Vimes. What for? How should I know? It took the Judas goat out of Sox Slaughterhouse, so half the damn things are following it around. And then it went and put old Fosdyke in his sausage machine. What? Oh, it didn't turn the handle. It just shoved a handful of parsley in his mouth, dropped an onion down his trousers, covered him in oatmeal, and dropped him in the opera. Angua's shoulders started to shake. Even Vimes grinned. And then it went into the poultry merchants, grabbed Mr. Turwilly, and... The man stopped, aware there was a lady present, even if she was making snorting noises while trying not to laugh, and continued in a mumble. Made use of some sage and onion, if you know what I mean. You mean he... Vimes began. Yes, his companion nodded. Poor old Turwilly won't be able to look sage and onion in the face again, I reckon. By the sound of it, that's the last thing he'll do, said Vimes. Angua had to turn her back. Tell him about what happened in your pork butchers, said the man's companion. I don't think you'll need to, said Vimes. I'm seeing a pattern here. Right, and poor young Sid's only an apprentice and didn't deserve what it done to him. Oh, dear, said Carrot. 
Uh, I think I've got an ointment that might be... Will it help with the apple? the man demanded. He'd shoved an apple in his mouth. Wrong! Vimes winced. Ouch! What's going to be done, eh? said the butcher, his face a few inches from Vimes's. Well, if you can get a grip on the stem... I'm serious! What are you going to do? I'm a taxpayer and I know my rights! He prodded Vimes in the breastplate. Vimes's expression went wooden. He looked down at the finger and then back up at the man's large red nose. In that case, said Vimes, I suggest you take another apple and, uh, excuse me, said Carrot loudly, you're Mr. Maxilot, aren't you? Got a shop in the shambles? Yes, that's right, what of it? It's just that I don't recall seeing your name on the register of taxpayers, which is very odd because you said you were a taxpayer, but of course you wouldn't lie about a thing like that, and anyway, when you paid your taxes, they would have given you a receipt, because that's the law, and I'm sure you'd be able to find it if you looked. The butcher lowered his finger. Er, uh, yes, I could come and help you if you'd like, said Carrot. The butcher gave Vimes a despairing look. He really does read that stuff, said Vimes, for pleasure. Carrot, why don't you scop? My gods, what the hell is that? There was a bellow further up the street. Something big and muddy was approaching at a sort of menacing amble. In the gloom it looked vaguely like a very fat centaur, half man, half... In fact it was, he realised as it bounced nearer, half colon, half bull. Sergeant Colon had lost his helmet and had a certain look about him that suggested he had been close to the soil. As the massive bull cantered past, the sergeant rolled his eyes wildly and said, I daren't get off! I daren't get off! How did you get on? shouted Vimes. It wasn't easy, sir. I just grabbed the orange, sir. Next minute I was on its back. Well, hang on. Yes, sir. Hanging on, sir. Rogers the bulls were angry and bewildered, which counts as the basic state of mind for full-grown bulls. Because of the huge, obtrusive mass of his forehead, Rogers the Bull's view of the universe was from two eyes each with their own non-overlapping hemispherical view of the world. Since there were two separate visions, Rogers had reasoned, that meant there must be two bulls, bulls not having been bred for much deductive reasoning. Most bulls believe this, which is why they always keep turning their head this way and that when they look at you. They do this because both of them want to see. But... They had a particular reason. Beef cattle have a religion. They are deeply spiritual animals. They believe that good and obedient cattle go to a better place when they die through a magic door. They don't know what happens next, but they've heard that it involves really good eating and, for some reason, horseradish. Rogers had been quite looking forward to it. They were getting a bit creaky these days, and cows seemed to run faster than they had done when they were lads. They could just taste that heavenly horseradish and instead they'd been herded into a crowded pen for a day, and then the gate had been opened, and there'd been animals everywhere, and this did not look like the promised lard. And someone was on their back. They'd tried to buck him off a few times. In Rogers's heyday, the impudent man would by now be a few stringy red stains on the ground, but finally the arthritic bulls had given up until such time as they could find a handy tree on which to scrape him off. They just wished the wretched man would stop yelling. Vimes took a few steps after the bull and then turned. Carrot, Angua, you two get down to Caddy's tallow works. Just keep an eye on it until we get there, understand? 
Spy out the place, but don't go in, understand? Right? Do not in any circumstances move in. Do I make myself clear? Just remain in the area, right? Yes, sir, said Carrot. Detritus, let's get Fred off that thing. The crowds were melting away ahead of the bull. A ton of pedigree bull does not experience traffic congestion, at least not for any length of time. Can't you jump off, Fred? Vimes yelled as he ran along behind. I do not wish to give that a try, sir. Well, can you steer it? How, sir? Take the bull by the horns, man. Colon tentatively reached out and took a horn in each hand. Rogers the bulls turned their head and nearly pulled him off. He's a bit stronger than me, sir. Quite a lot stronger, actually, sir. I could shoot it through the head with my bow, Mr. Vames, said Detritus, flourishing his converted siege weapon. This is a crowded street, Sergeant. It might hit an innocent person, even in Aunt Norpork. Sorry, sir, Detritus brightened. But if it did, we could always say they'd been guilty of something, sir. No, that... Uh, what's that chicken doing? A small black bantam cock raced up the street, ran between the bull's legs and skidded to a halt just in front of Rogers. A smaller figure jumped off its back, leapt up, caught hold of the ring through the bull's nose, swung up further until it was in the mass of curls on the bull's forehead, and then took a firm hold of a lock of hair in each tiny hand. It looks like we mad Arthur de Gnome, sir, said Detritus. He trying to nut the bull. There was a noise like a slow woodpecker working on a particularly difficult tree, and it punctuated a litany of complaints from somewhere between the animal's eyes. Take that, you big lump that you are. The bulls stopped. They tried to turn their heads so that one or other of the Rogerses could see what the hell it was that was hammering at their foreheads, and might as well have tried looking down their own ears. They staggered backwards. Fred, Vimes whispered, you slip off its back while it's busy. With a panicky look, Sergeant Colan swung a leg over the bull's huge back and slid down to the ground. Vimes grabbed him and hustled him into a doorway. Then he hustled him out again. A doorway was far too confined a space in which to be anywhere near Fred Colon. Why are you all covered in crap, Fred? Well, sir, you know that creek you're up without a paddle? It started there and it got worse, sir. Good grief. Worse than that? Permission to go and have a bath, sir? No, but you could stand back a few more feet. What happened to your helmet? Last time I saw it, it was on a sheep, sir. Sir, I was tied up and shoved in a cellar and heroically broke free, sir. And I was chased by one of them golems, sir. Where was this? Colon had hoped he wouldn't be asked that. It was a place in the shambles, he said. It was foggy, so I, um... Vimes grabbed Colon's wrists. What's this? They tied me up with string, sir, but at great personal risk of life and limb. I... This doesn't look like string to me, said Vimes. No, sir? No, this looks like candlewick. Colon looked blank. Is that a clue, sir? He said hopefully. There was a splatting noise as Vimes slapped him on the back. Well done, Fred, he said, wiping his hand on his trousers. It's certainly a corroboration. That's what I thought said Colon quickly. This is a corroboration, and I've got to get it to Commander Vimes as soon as possible, regardless of... Was that gnome nutting that bull, Fred? That's we mad Arthur, sir. We owe him a dollar. He was of some help, sir. Rogers the bulls were on their knees, dazed and bewildered. It wasn't that we mad Arthur was capable of delivering a killing blow, but he just didn't stop. After a while, the noise and the thumping got on people's nerves. Should we help him? 
said Vimes. Looks like he's doing all right by himself, sir, said Colin. Wee Mad Arthur looked up and grinned. One dollar eight, he shouted. No Welsh in order to come after yous. One of these buggers trod on me grandpa once. Was he hurt? He got one of his horns twisted right off. Vimes took Sergeant Colan firmly by the arm. Cab, old Fred, it's all hitting the street now. Right, sir, and most of it's splashing. I say, you there, you're a watchman, aren't you? Come over here. Vimes turned. A man had pushed his way through the crowds. On the whole, Colan reflected, it was just possible that the worst moment of his life hadn't happened yet. Vimes tended to react in a ballistic way to words like, I say, you there, when uttered in a certain kind of neighing voice. The speaker had an aristocratic look about him, and the angry air of a man not accustomed to the rigours of life, who had just found one happening to him. Vimes saluted smartly. Yes, sir, I'm a watchman, sir. Well, just you come along with me and arrest this thing, it's disturbing the workers. What thing, sir? A golem man walked into the factory as bold as you like and started painting on the damn walls. What factory, sir? You come with me, my man. I happen to be a very good friend of your commander, and I can't say I like your attitude. Sorry about that, sir, said Vimes, with a cheerfulness that Sergeant Colan had come to dread. There was a nondescript factory on the other side of the street. The man strode in. Er, uh, he said, golem, sir, murmured Colan. Vimes had known Fred Colan a long time. Yes, Fred, so it's vitally important for you to stay on guard out here, he said. The relief rose off Colan like steam. That's right, sir, he said. The factory was full of sewing machines. People were sitting meekly in front of them. It was the sort of thing the guilds hated, but since the Guild of Seamstresses didn't take all that much interest in sewing, there was no one to object. Endless belts led up from each machine to pulleys on a long spindle near the roof, which in turn were driven by... Vimes's eyes followed it down the length of the workshop. A treadmill, now stationary and somewhat broken. A couple of golems were standing forlornly alongside it, looking lost. There was a hole in the wall quite close to it, and above it someone had written in red paint, Workers, no master but yourselves. Vimes grinned. It smashed its way in, broke the treadmill, pulled my golems out, painted that stupid message on the wall, and stamped out again, said the man behind him. Hmm, yes, I see. A lot of people use oxen in their treadmills, said Vimes mildly. What's that got to do with it? Anyway, cattle can't keep going for twenty-four hours a day. Vimes's gaze worked its way along the rows of workers. Their faces had that worried Cockbill Street look that you got when you were cursed with pride as well as poverty. No, indeed, he said. Most of the clothing workshops are up at Knapp Hill, but the wages are cheaper down here, aren't they? People are jolly glad to get the work. Yes, said Vimes, looking at the faces again. Glad. At the far end of the factory, he noted the golems were trying to rebuild their treadmill. Now, you listen to me. What I want you to do is... The factory owner began. Vimes's hand gripped his collar and dragged him forward until his face was a few inches from Vimes's own. No, you listen to me, hissed Vimes. I mix with crooks and thieves and thugs all day and that doesn't worry me at all. But after two minutes with you, I need a bath. And if I find that damn golem, I'll shake its damn hand. 
You hear me? To the surprise of that part of Vimes that wasn't raging, the man found enough courage to say, How dare you? You're supposed to be the law. Vimes's furious finger almost went up the man's nose. Where shall I start? he yelled. He glared at the two golems. And why are you clowns repairing the treadmill? he shouted. Good grief, haven't you got the sense you were bought? Haven't you got any sense? He stormed out of the building. Sergeant Colan stopped trying to scrape himself clean and ran to catch up with him. I heard some people say they saw a golem come out the other door, sir, he said. It was a red one, you know, red clay. But the one that was after me was white, sir. Are you angry, Sam? Who's the man that owns that place? That's Mr. Catterail, sir. You know, he's always writing you letters about there being too many what he calls lesser races in the watch. You know, trolls and dwarfs. The sergeant had to trot to keep up with him. Get some zombies, said Vimes. You've always been dead against zombies, excuse my pun, said Sergeant Colan. Any want to join, are there? Oh, yes, sir, a couple of good lads, sir. But for the grey skin hanging off them, you'd swear they hadn't been buried five minutes. Swear them in tomorrow. Right, sir, good idea. And, of course, it's a great saving not having to include them in the pension plan. They can patrol up on King's Down. After all, they're only human. Right, sir. When Sam is in these moods, Colon thought, you agree with everything. You really get in the hang of this affirmative action stuff, eh, sir? Right now I'd swear in a gorgon. There's always Mr Bleakley, sir. He's getting fed up with working in the kosher butchers and... But no vampires. Never any vampires. Now, let's get a move on, Fred. Nobby Nobbs ought to have known. That's what he told himself as he scuttled through the streets. All that stuff about kings and stuff. They'd wanted him to... It was a terrible thought. Volunteer. Nobby had spent a lifetime in one uniform or another, and one of the most basic lessons he'd learned was that men with red faces and plummy voices never, ever gave cushy numbers to the likes of Nobby. They'd ask for volunteers to do something big and clean, and you'd end up scrubbing some damn great drawbridge. They'd say, anyone here like good food? And you'd be peeling potatoes for a week. You never, ever volunteered. Not even if a sergeant stood there and said, we need someone to drink alcohol, bottles of, and make love passionate to women for the use of. There was always a snag. If a choir of angels asked for volunteers for paradise to step forward, Nobby knew enough to take one smart pace to the rear. When the call came for Corporal Nobbs, it would not find him wanting. It would not find him at all. Nobby avoided a herd of pigs in the middle of the street. Even Mr Vimes never expected him to volunteer. He respected Nobby's pride. Nobby's head ached. It must have been the quail's eggs, he was sure. They couldn't be healthy birds to lay titchy eggs like that. He sidled past a cow that had got its head stuck in someone's window. Nobby as king. Oh, yes. No one ever gave a Nobbs anything except maybe a skin disease or sixty lashes. It was a dog-eat-knobs world, right enough. If there were to be a world competition for losers, a knobs would come first, er, uh, last. He stopped running and went to earth in a doorway. In its welcome shadows, he extracted a very short cigarette end from behind his ear and lit it. Now that he felt safe enough to think about more than flight, he wondered about all the animals that seemed to be on the streets. 
Unlike the family tree that had borne Fred Colon as its fruit, the creeping vine of the Nobses had flourished only within city walls. Nobby was vaguely aware of animals as being food in a primary stage and left it at that, but he was pretty sure they weren't supposed to be wandering around untidily like this. Gangs of men were trying to round them up. Since they were tired and working at cross-purposes, and the animals were hungry and bewildered, all that was happening was that the streets were getting a lot muddier. Nobby became aware that he was not alone in the doorway. He looked down. Also lurking in the shadows was a goat. It was unkempt and smelly, but it turned its head and gave Nobby the most knowing look he'd ever seen on the face of an animal. Unexpectedly and most uncharacteristically, Nobby was struck by a surge of fellow feeling. He pinched out the end of his cigarette and passed it down to the goat, which ate it. "'You and me both,' said Nobby. Miscellaneous livestock scattered madly as Carrot, Angua and Cherie made their way down the shambles. They especially tried to keep away from Angua. It seemed to Cherie that an invisible barrier was advancing in front of them. Some animals tried to climb walls or scattered madly into side alleys. "'Why are they so scared?' said Cherie. "'Can't imagine,' said Angua. "'A few maddened sheep ran away from them "'as they walked around the candle factory. "'Light from its high windows indicated "'that candle-making continued all night. "'They make nearly half a million candles "'every twenty-four hours,' said Carrot. "'I've heard they've got very advanced machinery. "'It sounds very interesting. "'I'd love to see it.' "'At the rear of the premises, "'light blazed out into the fog. "'Crates of candles were being manhandled "'onto a succession of carts.' "'Looks normal enough,' said Carrot, as they eased themselves into a conveniently shadowy doorway. "'Busy, though.' "'I don't see what good this is going to do,' said Angua. "'As soon as they see us, they can destroy any evidence. "'And even if we find arsenic, so what? "'There's no crime in owning arsenic, is there?' "'Ah, uh, is there a crime in owning that?' whispered Cherie. "'A golem was walking slowly up the alley. "'It was quite unlike any other golem they'd seen.' The others were ancient, and had repaired themselves so many times that they were as shapeless as a gingerbread man. But this one looked like a human, or at least like humans wished they could look. It resembled a statue made of white clay. Around its head, part of the very design was a crown. "'I was right,' murmured Carrot. "'They did make themselves a golem. The poor devils! They thought a king would make them free!' "'Look at its legs!' said Angua. As the golem walked, lines of red light appeared and disappeared all over its legs and across its body and arms. "'It's cracking,' she said. "'I knew you couldn't bake pottery in an old bread oven,' said Cherie. "'It's not the right shape!' The golem pushed open a door and disappeared into the factory. "'Let's go,' said Carrot. "'Commander Vimes told us to wait for him,' said Angua. "'Yes, but we don't know what might be going on in there,' said Carrot. "'Besides, he likes us to use our initiative. "'We can't just hang around now.' "'He darted across the alley and opened the door. "'There were crates piled inside with a narrow passageway between them. "'From all around them, but slightly muffled by the crates, "'came the clicking and rattling of the factory. "'The air smelled of hot wax. "'Cherie was aware of a whispered conversation "'going on several feet above her little round helmet.' I wish Mr. Vimes hadn't wanted us to bring her, supposing something happens to her. What are you talking about? Well, you know, she's a girl. So what? There's at least three female dwarfs in the watch already, and you don't worry about them. Oh, come on, name one. Last skull drinker for a start? No. Really? Are you calling this nose a liar? But he broke up a fight at the miner's arms single-handedly last week. 
Well, why do you assume females are weaker? You wouldn't worry about me taking on a vicious bar crowd by myself. I'd give aid where necessary. To me or to them? Oh, that's unfair, is it? I wouldn't help them unless you got really rough. Oh, so. And they say chivalry is dead. Anyway, Cherie is, is a bit different. I'm sure he... she's good at alchemy, but we'd better watch her back in a fight. Hold on. They stepped out into the factory. Candles whirled overhead, hundreds of them, thousands of them, dangling by their wicks from an endless belt of complex wooden links that switch-backed its way up and down the long hall. I heard about this, said Carrot. It's called a producing line. It's a way of making thousands of things that are all the same. But look at the speed. I'm amazed the treadmill can... Angua pointed. There was a treadmill creaking around beside her, but there was nothing inside it. Something's got to be powering all this, said Angua. Carrot pointed. Further up the hall, the switchbacks of the line converged in a complicated knot. There was a figure somewhere in the middle, arms moving in a blur. Just beside Carrot, the line ended at a big wooden hopper. Candles cascaded into it. No one had been emptying it, and they were tumbling over the pile and rolling onto the floor. Cherie, said Carrot, do you know how to use any kind of weapon? Er, uh, no, Captain Carrot. Right, you just wait in the alley, then. I don't want any harm coming to you. She scuttled off looking relieved. Angua sniffed the air. There's been a vampire here, she said. I think we'd... Carrot began. Ah, I knew you'd find out. Ah, I wish I'd never bought the damn thing. Ah, I've got a bow. I, I warn you, I've got a crossbow. They turned. Ah, oh, Mr. Carry, said Carrot cheerfully. He produced his badge. Captain Carrot, Ankh-Mor Pork City Watch. I know who you are, I know who you are, and what you are too. Oh, I knew you'd come. I've got a bow and I'm not afraid to use it. The crossbow's point moved uncertainly, proving him a liar. Really, said Angua, what we are? I didn't even want to get involved, said Carrie. It killed those old men, didn't it? Yes, said Carrot. Why? I didn't tell it to. Because they helped make it, I think, said Carrot. It knew who to blame. The, the, the golems sold it to me, said Carrie. I thought it had helped build up the business, but the damn thing won't stop. He glanced up at the line of candles whirring overhead, but jerked his head back before Angua could move. Works hard, does it? Ha! But Carrie didn't look like a man enjoying a joke. He looked like a man in private torment. I've laid off everyone except the girls in the packing department, and they're on three shifts and overtime. I've got four men out looking for tallow, two negotiating for wicks, and three trying to buy more storage space. Then get it to stop making candles, said Carrot. It goes off into the streets when we run out of tallow. You want it walking around looking for something to do? Hey, you two stay together, Carrie added urgently, waving the crossbow. Look, all you have to do is change the words in its head, said Carrot. It won't let me. Don't you think I've tried? It can't not let you, said Carrot. Golems have to let... I said it, it won't let me. What about the poisoned candles, said Carrot. That wasn't my idea. Whose idea was it? Carrie's crossbow swung back and forth. He licked his lips. This has all gone far too far, he said. I'm getting out. Whose idea, Mr Carrie? I'm not going to end up in some alley somewhere with as much blood as a banana. Now then, we wouldn't do anything like that, said Carrot. 
Mr. Carey was exporting terror, and Ewer could smell it streaming off him. He might pull the trigger out of sheer panic. There was another smell, too. "'Who's the vampire?' she said. For a moment she thought the man would fire the crossbow. "'Ah! I never said anything about him!' "'You've got garlic in your pocket,' said Angua, "'and the place reeks of vampire.' "'He said we could get the golem to do anything,' Carrie mumbled. "'Like making poisoned candles,' said Carrot. "'Yes, but he said it'd just keep Veterinari out of the way,' said Carrie. "'He seemed to be getting a tenuous grip on himself. "'And he's not dead, cos I'd have heard,' he said. "'I shouldn't think making him ill is a crime, so you can't.' "'The candles killed two other people,' said Carrot.' Carrie started to panic again. Who? An old lady and a baby in Cockbill Street. Uh, uh, were they important? said Carrie. Carrot nodded to himself. I was almost feeling sorry for you, he said, right up to that point. You're a lucky man, Mr Carrie. You think so? Oh, yes. We got to you before Commander Vimes did. Now, just put down the crossbow and we can talk about it. There was a noise, or rather the sudden cessation of a noise that had been so pervasive that it had no longer been consciously heard. The clacking line had stopped. There was a chorus of little waxy thuds as the hanging candles swung and hit one another, and then silence unrolled. The last candle dropped off the line, tumbled down the heap in the hopper, and bounced on the floor. And in the silence, the sound of footsteps. Carrie started to back away. Oh, too late, he moaned. Both Carrot and Angua saw his finger move. Angua pushed Carrot out of the way as the claw released the string. But he had anticipated this, and his hand was already flinging itself up and across. She heard the sickening tearing noise as his palm whirled in front of her face, and his grunt as the force of the bolt spun him round. He landed heavily on the floor, clutching his left hand. The crossbow bolt was sticking out of the palm. Angua crouched down. It doesn't look barbed. Let me pull it. Carrot grabbed her wrist. The point's silver. Don't touch it. They both looked up as a shadow crossed the light. The king golem looked down at her. She felt her teeth and fingernails begin to lengthen. Then she saw the small round face of Cherie peering nervously around a pile of crates. Angua fought down her werewolf instincts, screamed stay right there at the dwarf and at every swelling hair follicle, and hesitated between pursuing the fleeing Carrie and dragging Carrot to safety. She told her body again that a wolf shape was not an option. There were too many strange smells, too many fires. The golem glistened with tallow and wax. She backed away. Behind the golem, she saw Cherie look down at the groaning Carrot and then up at a fire axe hooked on the wall. The dwarf took it down and weighed it vaguely in her hands. Don't try, Angua began. Oh no, moaned Carrot, not that one. Cherie came up behind the golem at a run and hacked at its waist. The axe rebounded, but she pirouetted with it and caught the statue on the thigh, chipping off a piece of clay. Angua hesitated. Cherie's axe was making blurred orbits around the golem, while its wielder yelled more terrible battle cries. Angua couldn't make out any words, but many dwarf cries didn't bother with words. They went straight for emotions in sonic form. Chips of pottery ricocheted off the crates as each blow landed. "'What did she yell?' Angua said as she pulled Carrot out of the way. "'It's the most menacing dwarf battle cry there is. Once it's been shouted, someone has to be killed. What's it mean?' Today is a good day for someone else to die. 
The golem watched the dwarf incuriously, like an elephant watching an attack by a rogue chicken. Then it picked the axe out of the air, Cherie trailing behind it like a comet, and hurled it aside. Angua hauled Carrot to his feet. Blood dripped from his hand. She tried to shut her nostrils. Full moon tomorrow? No more choices? Maybe we can reason with it, Carrot started. Attention! This is the real world calling, shouted Angua. Carrot drew his sword. I am arresting you, he began. The golem's arm whirred across. The sword buried itself to the hilt in a crate of candles. Got any more clever ideas, said Angua, as they backed away, or can we go now? No, we've got to stop it somewhere. Their heels met a wall of crates. I think we've found the place, said Angua, as the golem raised its fists again. You duck right, I'll duck left. Maybe a blow rocked the big double doors in the far wall. The king golem's head turned. The doors shook again and burst inwards. For a moment, Dorful was framed in the doorway. Then the red golem lowered his head, spread his arms and charged. It wasn't a very fast run, but it did have a terrible momentum, like the slow slide of a glacier. The floorboards shook and drummed under him. The golems collided with a clang in the middle of the floor. Jagged lines of fire spread across the king's body as cracks opened, but it roared and caught up Dorful round the middle and tossed him against the wall. Come on, said Angua. Now can we find Cherie and get out of here? We ought to help him, said Carrot, as the golems smashed into each other again. How? If it, if he can't stop it, what makes you think we can? Come on! Carrot shook her off. Dorful picked itself up from among the bricks and charged again. The golems met, scrabbling at one another for purchase. They stood locked for a moment, creaking, and then Dorful's hand came up holding something. Dorful pushed himself back and smashed the other golem over the head with its own leg. As it spun, Dorful's other hand lashed out, but was grabbed. The king swivelled with a strange grace, bore Dorful to the floor, rolled and kicked out. Dorful rolled too. He flung out his arms to stop himself and looked back to see both his feet pinwheeling into the wall. The king picked up its own leg, balanced for a moment and joined itself together. Then its red gaze swept the factory and flared when it caught sight of Carrot. "'There must be a back way out of here,' muttered Angua. "'Carry got out!' The king started to run after them, but hit an immediate problem. It had put its leg on back to front. It began to limp in a circle, but somehow the circle got nearer to them. "'We can't just leave Dorful lying there,' said Carrot. He pulled a long metal rod out of a stirring tank and eased himself back down to the grease-crusted floor." The king rocked towards him. Carrot hopped backwards, steadying himself on a rail, and swung. The golem lifted its hand, caught the rod out of the air, and tossed it aside. It raised both fists and tried to step forward. It couldn't move. It looked down. The said what remained of Dorful, gripping its ankle. The king bent, swung one hand with the palm edgewise, and calmly sheared the top off Dorful's head. It removed the chem and crumpled it up. The glow died in Dorful's eyes. Angua cannoned into Carrot so hard he almost fell over. She wrapped both arms around him and pulled him after her. It just killed Dorful, just like that, said Carrot. It's a shame, yes, said Angua, or it would be if Dorful had been alive. Carrot, they're like machinery. Look, can we make it to the door? Carrot shook himself free. It's murder, he said. We're watchmen. We can't just watch. It killed him. It's an it. And so's he. Commander Vimes said someone has to speak for the people with no voices. 
He really believes it, Angua thought. Vimes puts words in his head. Keep it occupied, he shouted and darted away. How? Organise a sing-song? I've got a plan! Oh, good, 